Hey, thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Northwest Bible Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more information or to find out how to get connected, you can visit us online at northwestbible.com or you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And now, let's open our Bibles and prepare our hearts for a word from God. Here, I'll explain that in a little bit. Uh, but I mean, it's springtime. Spring is here. What a better way to celebrate spring than dedicating three beautiful kids, Ezra, Annie, Alex. Privileged to dedicate them as a church this morning. So, yeah, thank you, God, for that. Well, can anybody tell me what? Uh, what this is right here. <laughs> Sprite, plastic. Actually, to the, to the mind of a 13, 14-year-old boy, this is actually uh, a beautiful, a magnificent receptacle for one of the most uh, adrenaline-inducing, compelling science experiments ever known to teenagers. You see, growing up, my good buddy Ryan and I, we lived on the same street, and I would take one of these and sort of dig into me mum's pantry. That's for you, St. Patty. I would uh, grab some aluminum foil, roll it up, toss it in, and then I'd venture over to Ryan's pool. And Ryan's pool had a place for muriatic acid. Don't do this at home. Um, So we would grab some of that, toss in an imprecise amount, screw this thing back on, and then sort of sit, wait, and wait until, bam, the whole thing blows up, harming nobody, but alarming quite a few. If we wanted to expedite the process to speed things along a little bit, we would just follow the same steps, get the foil, get the acid, this time we'd we'd shake it up, we'd mix it up a little bit, jostle it around, and we'd sit it down this time, we'd run, because this thing was gonna explode, and we wanted to get out of the way, all right? It turns out the combination of an acid reacting with a base is pretty combustible, uh, particularly when shaken. The harder you jostle it, the harder you shake it, the quicker and quicker it explodes. The point is this, the consistent message of the Bible is apart from the regenerating work of Christ, you and I are not altogether unlike this science experiment here, right? You can see it, right? You know this on a good day when things are going well, when your performance review goes well, when your boss gives you praise, when that project gets over the line, you can take criticism, you can take a slight. On a bad day when you're stuck in traffic, when your dog eats your dinner and breaks your bowl, doesn't take much to set you off, right? You can easily explode. Underneath a veneer of stability, perhaps underneath a tough exterior, lies a foundation that can be incapable of traversing the very real, the very tangible struggles and strain of this world. When I was 19, I was diagnosed with an autoimmune condition, right? I was told that 
this thing would radically alter the course of my life. And it did, just not in the way that I was told. Uh, I was told that uh, it would introduce me to all sorts of symptoms, uh, all sorts of things that would make me miserable, right? A couple years later, I remember being in the midst of one of those seasons where there was a lot of jostling. There was a lot of shaking. Despite being healthy, all growing up, very active, my health was, was slipping away uh, from me. I couldn't keep anything down. I was losing weight. I had this inflammation that I couldn't seem to, to fight off. And with the help of my doctor, uh, I kept trying to fight things off with, with treatment, with medication. None of it really seemed to work that well. And I remember being in the midst of one of those seasons and struggling and thinking to myself, God, what, what is it that you're doing here? I don't understand it. Is this all really worth it? Because I'm going through this and I'm getting angry. If I'm honest, I'm getting frustrated. I'm getting discouraged because the plans that I had for my life, they all seem pretty distant at this point, pretty unattainable. The plans I had for being productive, for accomplishing, for achieving, all those possibilities at the point where I'm standing right now look pretty vague. So fix me or call me home, right? Because this is not what I wanted. Ever been there? Ever been through a season like that? What I want to persuade you of this morning is that my thinking, and therefore my believing in that season, it was absolutely in line with the gospel, just not the gospel, right? It was a gospel that I think our world, our culture is familiar with that, that went something like this. I'm, I'm created to be productive. I'm created to achieve. I'm created to accomplish things. But where I find myself, I'm not because I haven't achieved. I can change. I can experience salvation and hope. I can change through new disciplines, through learning, through achieving. And if I do that, I hope that I can one day be accepted a false gospel. Here's another one. I should be in control. I should be in authority. I should be sovereign. But other people prevent me from being sovereign or in control. Therefore, I'll just avoid people who challenge my authority or reject them. That way I can have a hope that my sovereignty will go unchallenged. Do you see how subtle these things are? Do you see how easily we can accept them because they're the waters that we swim in, right? These are good things that have become ultimate things. Right? These are desires in our hearts that if they're allowed to, can displace the one true gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ and the hope that we have in him. And there are just two examples. Yours may look very different. But here's the point. In the moments of jostling, in the moments of, of shaking, of, of struggling, when this thing's being shook up, when we feel like we're about to explode, when we're coming face to face with the very real brokenness and sin of this world, it's in those moments when what we really believe gets exposed, right? We were in the uh, book of Exodus. The Israelites were in the wilderness in the wilderness when our beliefs get exposed. And by God's grace, it's in the wilderness 
It's in the struggles, the strain of life that God can take us, mold us, lead us away from those false gospels into the truth of the only gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in those moments of of darkness and trials that God can pick us up ever so gently, give us a transcendent hope, give us a powerful promise to lean on, replace all the, the combustible materials inside there with truth, with peace, with courage. God can pick us up in those moments and lead us towards a a true gospel, the true gospel that promises not just abstractions, right? Not just abstractions of achievement, of status, of control, but a tangible, a very real person of Jesus Christ. We're gonna be diving into that this morning We're going to be talking about Christ, the doctrine of Christ. We're in this this short sermon series on foundations, on fundamentals, right? We've been uh, through God. We've been at sin. This week, we're going to be turning towards the gospel. All right, as we go there, would you please join me in prayer, and we'll, we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful we can come here this morning. I pray that you would just stir uh, in my heart a great joy Uh, a great excitement to have the privilege of proclaiming your gospel, the good news that you've given your son as a ransom for many, that you've given your son to save sinners. I pray that that excitement, that joy, would be experienced by every single person here this morning. You've brought us here for a reason. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be working, that you would be opening up the eyes of our hearts just to see you clearly, to see our sin clearly, to see the false gospels that we've pursued, and to forsake those for the only true gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what is the gospel? That's the question before us this morning. We're going to answer that over the next 30 minutes, but as we head there, I think an appropriate place to start is this. There's a story in the 18th chapter of Luke. It's a story of Jesus talking with this rich young ruler, right? I, I don't, I'm not gonna have it up on the screen, so you guys are gonna have to, to track with me here, but let me just walk you through the scene, okay? Jesus is asked by this rich young ruler, what must I do to have eternal life? He doesn't know this person, he does, because he's God, but put yourself in his shoes. What if you were to be asked by by some person, what must I do to have eternal life? Where would you take the conversation? What would you do? Would you say, sell all your things, give them to the poor? I think many of us would say that might have a scent of works-based righteousness, right? We wouldn't go there. Maybe we would pull out a pamphlet. We would explain the two ways to live. We would try to contextualize a a creative gospel presentation, maybe. But Jesus doesn't do that. He He doesn't draw some diagram in the sand with with this rich young ruler on one side, uh, God on the other side, a bridge in between with the cross in the middle and say, you gotta cross over. Instead, what he does is he just commands this young man to give everything he has away to the poor, 
The reason is that this man's problem is not in his head. It's in his heart, right? His heart is an idol factory. His desire for wealth and security controls him, and he doesn't even know it. The Bible tells us the heart is the source of all our motivation, all our behavior, our reasoning, our emotion. And this young man's heart is already occupied. It has already found its treasure, right? The young man is not yet ready for a, for a true gospel. He's already staked his claim to a false one. His great need is for his sin, his idolatry, to be displaced, to be exposed, so that the true gospel can reign in his heart. And so it is with us, right? Last week, Jeff preached on the doctrine of sin. We were reminded of the depth and the depravity of our sin in our own lives, in the world. Uh, Two Sundays ago, on the first Sunday in this series, we looked at the holiness of God, his righteousness, his perfection, his nature, his justice, his righteousness, his perfect love. And the reason, the reason we absolutely have to start at those two places before getting to the gospel is that our acceptance of Christ as the mediator of the one true gospel is dependent, conditional, on our awareness of God's holiness and on the conviction of the depth of sin in our heart. Let me just say it like this. We will never truly understand that we need a savior until we recognize that we're in need of saving. We'll never truly understand that we need a savior until we recognize that we're in desperate need of saving. And so we grasp God's holiness. We simultaneously grasp our waywardness. That's how it works. It's like two sides of a coin, right? They're interrelated. We need both. We cannot truly understand, comprehend one without the other. And until we've done that, until we've grasped both sides of that coin, we're not ready for the true gospel. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it like this, it it may sound paradoxical, but you must be made miserable before you can know true Christian joy. Indeed, the real trouble with the miserable Christian is that he has never been truly made miserable because of conviction of sin. He has bypassed the essential preliminary to joy. I I think the, the prophet Isaiah says it better in Isaiah 6, 5. He says, Woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah sees the King. Isaiah sees the God of the universe right before his eyes. He's confronted with simultaneously God's holiness, his sinfulness. God's holiness, his culture's sinfulness. The Bible tells us that when God enables us to see our sin, our eyes are open to the depth of the ways that we've given ourselves to it. Uh, Romans 1.18, Jeff read it last week, but we're just going to go there again. It talks about this great exchange where we see the glory of God. We see his worth, his majesty, yet we prefer other things. 
This is what Romans 1, 18 through 23 says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So sin originates in the human heart and mind as man makes this turn from the truth about God to embrace a lie about him. And from that, that darkened heart, sinful behaviors, sinful actions, sinful deeds sort of just almost naturally pour forth like bad water from a polluted fountain. That's what leads the prophet Jeremiah to conclude, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately corrupt. Who can understand it? Apart from Christ, it's like you and I, we're driving through a tunnel, a dark tunnel. We have no headlights. We have no mirrors. It's dark. We cannot properly see ourselves, our surrounding, or what's in front of us. We need the illuminating power of, of God. We need awakening. But more than anything, we need grace. We stand before a holy, a righteous God, condemned, unable to approach him because of our sin. We stand awaiting, deserving his wrath, his perfect judgment. That doesn't sound nice, but that's what the Bible tells us. That's what we have to reckon with. Except for one thing. And this is the moment when the hero enters the scene, right? This is the moment when the rescue takes place. It's like the moment when the grave digger enters the arena and all the other pretender monster trucks are just sent on their way. I went to Monster Jam with my son a few weeks ago, so I'm a, I'm a big grave digger fan now. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, 4. So there's a tension that we see, that we feel in the scriptures, right, about God, about his character. On the one hand, he has this holy righteousness, he has this anger uh, towards sin, this wrath. But on the other hand, we, we read he's compassionate, he's merciful, he's quick to forgive, and the only way that those things can be properly resolved is through the cross of Christ, right? It's, it's the cross that reveals God's severity towards sin, his displeasure towards sin, but it's also the cross that tells us that he is so compassionate, so merciful, so graceful, that he would give up his only son to die a horrific death because he loves his creation, he loves you so much. And so some of you, maybe you're saying, okay, I, I, can, I can get behind maybe the fact that Jesus died on the cross 
historically. That really happened. It sounds good. It sounds like good news. I can even assent to it intellectually, but what does it really mean for me in the day-to-day life when I feel like this thing that's being shaken and jostled? What are the implications of the gospel? Here they are. Here's just three of them. This is all we're going to have time for. There's more, but number one, you are accepted. If you are in Christ, you are wholly, entirely accepted. You're God's child, you're God's son, you're God's daughter. Number two, you are free. You have freedom in Christ. He sets you free. You're free from bondage to sin, from domination to sin. Number three, you're not alone. You are not alone. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the indwelling Holy Spirit to guide you, to counsel you, to strengthen you. As the Apostle Paul sort of builds on his argument in the book of Romans, he, he offers up not just a major transition in his own narrative, in his own letter, but he offers up, uh, he offers up this great turning point in all of redemptive history. He says it beautifully and clearly. And this is what he says. We're in Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's the good news. Up until this point, we stand before God condemned. We could not possibly be declared righteous before a holy God. But now, but now, Christ has made a way. Right? He, he provides a way to be justified. His achievement on the cross and our response to it in faith enables us to come before God, to be justified, be accepted, to have a relationship with him. It compels Paul to go on to say in Galatians, Galatians 2.16, man is not justified by works of the law, but by through faith, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And there will be a lot more on faith next week. Please do come back. But let me just say this. What Christ has achieved for you and I, it's this, think of it as an instantaneous legal act, right? it's, It's known as justification, but what it implies is that the very God of the universe, he looks at our sin and says it's forgiven. He he doesn't even see it anymore. He sees Christ's righteousness as belonging to us and he declares us to be righteous 
in his sight. Put yourself in this scene. You're, you're, you're an accused criminal. You're standing before uh, an impartial judge. You're ready to receive your, your just sentence. As you sort of stand there, listen to the, to the judge, read the sentence, you have no recourse, no defense, you know you're, you're guilty, you, sit, you just stand there speechless, sort of head bowed as this is read, you're certain to be found guilty. But now, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Because of God's grace through faith, you're not just pardoned, you're not just found innocent, you're not just forgiven, you're not just neutral in his sight, the perfect righteousness of the king of the kingdom has been given to you, right? Your prior sins have been removed. Past, prior, future are no longer there in God's sight. Because of your faith, he sees the perfect life of his son. Does that blow you away? Does that drop you to your knees? There is no more powerful more incomprehensible fact than this. God justifies the ungodly. He justifies sinners. It's absolutely amazing. This is what it did for for Martin Luther. Listen to what Martin Luther writes when he's meditating on justification by faith and faith alone. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. Thereupon, I ran through the scripture from memory. I found the power of God with which he makes us wise, the strength of God, the salvation of God, the glory of God. If you're a Christian, you're a holy, entirely new creation. That's the truth of who you are in Christ. The old has passed away, the new has come, right? Not because of anything you've done, but because of what Christ has done. Here's what it means. Anybody tell me what this is? It's bottle. It's a, it's a, it's a justified sinner, right? Let me explain. So when justi- what justification means is that the, the acid The acid and the foil that was put in this thing that was causing this explosive condition was not just only removed. It wasn't just emptied out. It wasn't just neutral now. The whole thing was absolutely cleansed and it was filled with the most beautifully sweet, refreshing beverage in the entire universe. And that's not even enough to explain it. God refuses in all his glory to give us the penalty that we deserve for our sin. He's taken it away. He's made you righteous. He's made you a son. He's made you a daughter. He's brought you into a new kingdom under a new king. You're accepted as you are. You're his child. It's beautiful, right? Here's a, a great redemptive fact, an implication of this whole thing. If you're a Christian, Christ not only accepts you, 
he sets you free, right? You have been crucified with Christ and you no longer live. You've been crucified with Christ and you no longer live. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And this is more incredibly good news, right? Do you feel that? I mean, this is good news. Why? There's a definitive action in the past. Paul saying he's been crucified with Christ. And there is an ongoing implication in the future. I no longer live. I've been crucified with Christ. This happened, but it's not done. I no longer live. It's Christ who lives in me. You see, what Christ accomplished on the cross, it fundamentally alters who you are, who you will continue to be. The doctrine of Christ and the good news of the gospel is so all-encompassing, it's so holistic, that it doesn't just give you the keys to the kingdom and say, here you go, just wait for the second coming, wait till I call you home. No, no, no. It doesn't stop there. It equips you as a believer in the here and now for victorious living in Christ, a life of freedom from sin. It starts with a fullness of understanding what your acceptance entails, right? It starts with what we talked about earlier, God's holiness, your sinfulness, God's holiness, your sinfulness, my need for a savior, It continues by standing daily on the foundation of that grace, of that solution. That's what allows us to understand and comprehend our potential as a believer. Do you know your potential as a believer? Do you know where it comes from? I think in the church it's possible maybe to throw around these terms, right? Born again, a believer, new life in Christ, while still remaining relatively blind to the power inherent in what that means, the miracle of that. You have new DNA, you have a new life, you have new spiritual sight, you have all this newness because of what Christ has done. When Christ died physically, you die a spiritual death as well. That's the gospel. When Christ rises again, you're given new spiritual light. It means we don't have to go on sinning. It means we're not bound by our family, our circumstances. We're not predestined with our sin. If you will, we can live in new ways amidst the same circumstances. And here's why. Here's another great truth. You are not alone. If you're a Christian, you're, you are not alone. You see, it's, it's not enough for Paul to say that the death of Christ made him new. He says that, but he says that when he died, the, the old Paul wasn't just replaced with a, a newer, better version of Paul, right? He's, he says, what replaced that, that identity, that old identity that, that was sinful, that was broken, it wasn't a better version of Paul, it was Christ himself, He's not simply saying that the new Paul 
uh, is better at controlling his sin, that has more, the new Paul has more discipline, uh, better habits to allow him to defeat sin. He's saying where sin once controlled and reigned, Christ now reigns. Where anger, jealousy, covetousness once reigned, Christ now reigns. That's the gospel of your potential as a believer, right? It was necessary for Christ to die, and it was necessary for us to die with him so that he could live in our hearts. The old sinful nature in me has died, but it hasn't been replaced by a newer and better me. It's been replaced by Christ himself, right? I think there's still one more thing we have to reckon with, right? If we're honest, there's some days, there's some seasons even, that we don't feel free. We go through life and the same sins that we thought Christ had put to death, we're, we still struggle with. They rear their ugly heads in new ways. Maybe you're even in one of those seasons now. You know these truths, but somehow there's this gap between what is known and what is lived out. You, you don't feel accepted. You do feel alone. You don't feel free. What then? What then? It's a good question. And this is important, so listen up. The, the reason you need to know that Jesus has broken the power of sin is because the presence of sin still remains. The reason you need to know that Jesus has broken the power of sin is because the presence of sin still remains. It's the consistent message of the New Testament, right? Peter tells us as he's writing to the believers in Asia Minor, he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Let me just tell you real quick about lions. I'm going to paint a picture and ask you to step in it with me. Imagine you're walking down a path. You're on a long pilgrimage, right? You're walking down a path and you come upon a palace. As you approach the palace, you recognize that there are lions directly in front of you, one on each side of the path. And they are angry and they are hungry lions and they are definitely roaring. They're definitely seeking someone to devour. You stop as if to turn back when the porter at the palace calls out to you and says, is thy strength so small? Fear not the lions, for they are chained and are placed there for trial of faith where it is and for discovery of those that have none. Keep in the midst of the path and no hurt shall come to thee. Taking good care to walk exactly in the middle of the path, you walk directly by the lions and into the doors of the palace. You see, it's in those seasons of life when you don't feel free, when you feel alone, when you don't feel accepted, you don't feel Christ's presence. It's in those seasons when your feelings should not be trusted, right? The trust is in the cross. It's in the truth of God. It's the resurrection. It's God's word. It's the truth that although sin may still remain, 
although it may seem incredibly powerful to you in that moment, it may be roaring at you right in front of you. If you're in Christ, that sin is chained, right? That sin is ultimately defeated. No longer has the power to control you, to destroy you. The solution in those seasons lies in the cross, right? When you don't feel free, when you feel trapped, when you feel bound and determined by your sin, it's in those moments that the way out, the way of victory, it never goes through your feelings, it goes through the truth. It goes straight down the narrow path of the cross to the truth of the gospel. You wake up each morning, you proclaim the holy alien righteousness of Christ, you preach the good news of the gospel, what Christ has done on the cross, the resurrection, you're a new creation, he's given you a new start, he's given you a new birth, he's given you keys to the kingdom, you have a tremendous hope with what he's called you to in eternity. You're gonna die someday on this earth, that's the reality of this broken world. But when that happens, you get God. You get to spend eternity with him. And in the trenches of everyday life, that's how faith works, right? Not by sight, not by feelings, by the word of God. It's how this absolutely volatile compound right here, this completely unstable concoction, has stability, has newness of life. Listen to what the psalmist says about that in Psalm 1. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and in all that he does he prospers. There's this very vivid imagery of the person who who meditates on the truth of God's word. That's not only stable, but it stands up against the seasons of drought. Not only stands up against it, but it bears fruit in the midst of it. It does not wither. The true gospel of Christ, the good news, let me just give you one more illustration, okay? Because it's timely. It's like, it's like when your kids are doing an Easter egg hunt, it's that big Easter egg that you filled with a, a five or a $10 bill that you hide directly in front of them on the kitchen table, and they see it, but they still persist in looking in all these obscure places for little eggs with crusty jelly beans in them. Don't look for crusty jelly beans. The gospel of Jesus Christ is right in front of us. He gives it to us freely. It has everything we could ever desire. It tells us we're accepted. We're accepted as God's child. I don't have to earn my acceptance. I don't have to pursue achievements for my acceptance or do anything through good works. I'm accepted. I am free. I'm free from bondage to sin. I don't have to stay trapped where I'm at. I'm not bound and determined by my sins. And it tells us you, we are not alone. You are not alone. You have the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that counsels you, that strengthens you, that protects you, and so much more. These are the things that are given to us through Christ. These are the truths that allow us to navigate all the, all the jostling, all the shaking without exploding. They're the truths that allow us to understand our potential 
as a believer, our true potential as a person, as a Christ follower, are the truths that absolutely change everything. Have they changed everything for you? I'm going to close this in prayer. We're going we're gonna to head into communion. Um, I'm going to invite us all to celebrate the gospel through communion. Um, but right now, I'm, as I pray, if you are here this morning and, and God has done something in your heart and you want to respond to this true gospel, I'm just going to invite you to pray with me. Okay? Would you please bow your heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for uh, your goodness, your gospel. Thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, to die on the cross, to be the propitiation for my sin, Lord. I see all the ways that I've given myself over to, to false gospels. I've pursued things in this life that can never truly satisfy, Lord, and I I repent of that here this morning. And I ask, Lord, that you would just give me new life. I, I commit my life to you. I, I turn away from sin. I turn to you this morning, Lord. I confess you here this morning as my Lord and my Savior. In Jesus' name.